You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. So the question is, how does our love for Jesus translate into a new kind of connection with the people around us? When my wife and I lived in Boston several years ago, there was an article in the Boston Globe and it was about a woman named Adele Gabbery. And she had pretty good neighbors. Here's what uh, the article said byline Worcester. It can never be said that Adele Gabbery's neighbors were less than responsible. When her front lawn grew hip high, they had a local boy mow it down. When her pipes froze and burst, they had the water turned off. When the mail spilled out the front door, they called police. The only thing they didn't do was check to see if she was still alive. She wasn't. On Monday, police climbed her crumbling brick stoop, broke in the side door of her little blue house, and found what they believed to be the 73-year-old woman's skeletal remains sunk in a five-foot-high pile of trash where they had apparently lain perhaps for as long as four years. It's really not a very friendly neighborhood, said Eileen Dugan. <laughs> 70, once a close friend of Gabri's, whose house sits less than 20 feet from the dead woman's house. Okay, I clipped that article because I was convicted by it. And here's the question for you. If there were something wrong with your neighbor, how long would it take you to find out? If there was something that they were struggling with, how long would it take you to notice? And then how, how would you find out? Would you find out because of the lawn or because of the mail coming out of the door slot or, or, or the police arriving and banging down the door? Would you finally think, oh, okay, now I think I get it. Something's wrong with my neighbor. Or would you find out because they told you? Because you had become a trusted valued presence in their life. Now, loving your neighbor is not an easy thing to do, I know, because I have experience with this kind of thing. Um, when my wife and I lived in Los Angeles, we lived in a really rather sterile bedroom community. It was one of those planned communities where there are just a few architectural types that they kind of circulate through the whole neighborhood. And I remember several times driving home from work late at night, I'd be 10, 10.30, and I'd come home really tired, and I'd kind of weave my way through the neighborhood. And then I'd park in the driveway and hit the garage door opener, and the door wouldn't open. I'd think, oh, man, another battery. I need to, you know, get the... And I press and I press, and then I look closely and I go, ooh, that's not my garage. <laughs> I had pulled into somebody else's driveway. Everything looked so similar, and I, you know, I just had taken one turn too early. And we had a neighbor that was um, hard to love. I guess the best way to say it. Uh, seemed like a nice enough guy when we first got talking, but you know what? Uh, he had weird hours, late nights, loud parties, fights in the street. I knew something was different when my daughter and I tried to reach out to him by selling Girl Scout cookies. You know, so I bring my young daughter to the door. He answers the door bare-chested and uh, flips through a stack of $100 bills to buy a box of cookies. <laughs> I go, okay, we don't have much in common, this guy and me. 
tried to have conversations with him. And one time I did uh, get invited into his house, but I realized afterwards it's because he wanted to show me his, his, uh, his Emmys on the, uh, on the mantle. It was very, very impressive. But most of our conversations had to do with our foliage because he wanted a better view. And so we kept pruning and trimming to his satisfaction and never quite could please him until one day we went away and he did the job himself. He climbed over the fence and cut down the entire tree. Um, Now, I'm sure that Jesus really loves this guy, but I don't. (laughs) And, and And I didn't savor the prospect of calling him neighbor and reading my Bible about having to love neighbors. After time, we just kind of had a mutual agreement that we weren't going to bother each other. And I was okay with that, you know, because I I think that um, he had concluded that I didn't have much to offer him, and I think I had concluded the same. But you know what? I was missing something. I was missing the adventure that Jesus was calling me to in that relationship. See, I I think that I had thought about my friend as a prospective project. But he wasn't a project, and he certainly wasn't my project. What Jesus wanted was for me simply to be a friendly presence in his life. Now, this is the same point that Peter is making as he writes... A group of followers of Jesus Christ in modern-day Turkey, then Asia Minor, they have hard neighbors. And Peter's essential message is, don't give up on them, because God can use you to do wonderful things. In fact, God will use you because this is his mission for your life. Your life is about so much more than you. It's about what Jesus is continuing to do in the world today through you. And it begins with your neighbors. Yeah, they had hard neighbors. They were being marginalized. They were gossiping. They were slandering them. Peter even refers to this fiery trial in their midst. That's provocative. Yeah, it's hard. To these neighbors, these Christ followers were just a bunch of idiots with a kind of a strange little cult. But Peter says Jesus changes everything. Let's look at this text. Would you open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2? If you're going to flip open your Bible, go, go right of Hebrews and James, and uh, you'll find the next book is 1 Peter. It's on page 983 of the Pew Bible there. And what I want you to see is that Peter says, is trying to get them convinced that Jesus has given them a ministry of presence. And my point is that God presents himself. To others through your presence. If you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read this verse together. Just actually two verses. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the word of the Lord. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Now, this is a fairly standard opening to any first century Greek letter. First, we get the person who's sending the letter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He describes himself. Next, we get a description of those to whom the letter is sent. And here's where it immediately gets interesting in Peter's letter, because there are two words. Two words side by side that follow immediately after Peter's description. You cannot see it as clearly in the English translation. Those two words are chosen exiles. You can see those words here. Exiles has uh, been moved away from the, uh, by to, to the, it's not immediately uh, present in our English. And chosen's actually been moved all the way down to verse 2. And taken out of order for reasons of readability. But in the Greek... Peter has just hit his audience over the head with who they are, and maybe they didn't know it yet. Chosen exiles. And this will frame the whole letter. And I'd like to uh, reflect on each of these words, draw two implications, and then finally offer our practice for this week. First, the word exiles. And here, what I think we learn is that God assigns you to your neighbors. God assigns you to your neighbors. The word exile will immediately get anybody thinking about their neighborhood. It means I'm not where I belong. I'm not at home. I'm somewhere else. So I'm thinking about my neighborhood now and these strange people. Um, and there are two things about this word exile. First of all, it suggests to me that you're a guest in someone else's neighborhood. I want you to think about that for a minute. You're a guest in someone else's neighborhood. I mean, ask any of our visiting scholars or international students what it's like, and they know every single day, and they're in Seattle, that they're a guest here. And the culture is very strange to them. We are aliens <laughs> to them. And so they know that they're coming from another place. This word, this Greek word uh, that's translated as exiles can be translated as foreigner or alien. But it's interesting that it has three parts to it, beyond plus near Plus people. See, even in the very word itself, this is a people who come from beyond. They have a culture and a way of life that's from beyond. But they have been brought near to new people. And that's what an exile is. Someone who's from beyond with another culture that comes from beyond who is now in close proximity to other people. And just to make it really clear, Peter wants them to see that They're a guest in someone else's neighborhood, so he names some of the neighborhoods, these regions of modern Turkey or or ancient Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are your neighbors, he says to them. And you're a guest there, aren't you? The other thing about this uh, is that God has assigned you to these neighbors. Now, that may not be immediately apparent to you, but the word exile is a verbal word, and there's always an implied subject in a verbal word. And so even in English, if you're an exile, then someone has exiled you. And the, the equivalent for that here is this word uh, dispersion, which is also a verbal word. It, it's a word related to the word for to scatter. So you've been scattered, and there's an implied subject to that, as God had scattered you. Now, they would have understood this if they had read the Bible, because they know in the 8th century B.C., in the 6th century B.C., God had scattered his people. They'd taken them from Israel and scattered them around the ancient world at that time, the diaspora. But God is the one who assigned his people to a new location. 
And so likewise here, they're understanding the way Peter uses this language that they have been scattered, dispersed, located in these neighborhoods, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God assigns you to your neighbors. You see that? Interesting little bit of history around this. We don't really know exactly when Peter wrote this letter. I think it was early, and there's good reason to believe that it was written during the reign of Claudius, uh, who reigned from AD 41 to 54. What's interesting about Claudius is that he issued an edict that expelled Jews and Christians, he couldn't tell the difference, from the city of Rome. And he also had a policy of relocating people to different parts of the empire. And the way that practice would work is that, you know, if maybe you were a freed slave or down on your luck in Rome, you could get an offer to be sort of a homesteader somewhere else uh, in some distant remote area so you could get a financial incentive, maybe a house, maybe a little bit of a nest egg to move. You could get Roman citizenship. And so it's possible, we don't know for sure, but that maybe some of these uh, people to whom Peter is writing were people who once were in Rome and who have taken Claudius up on this offer. By the way, we know through historical sources that Claudius did this in exactly these five regions. And so maybe he's, maybe Peter is very cleverly calling on their own personal experience as displaced persons as a kind of a parable for their mission. Just like a great King Claudius sent you to this town and neighborhood so that he could expand his hegemony in an area where it might have been weak, so that his rule could be made more visible in these far-flung backwaters, so your great King Jesus Christ has assigned you, he has scattered you to your neighborhood so that Jesus Christ's influence might become more visible and spread through that neighborhood. See, that's a very subversive agenda here in Peter's letter. So immediately, we just want to pull back and and ask ourselves a question. Who are our neighbors? Who are they? Professor Darrell Guter Princeton tells us that our neighbor is the one with whom you have to do. Remember the Good Samaritan? The guys that weren't neighbors walked around. They avoided. So your neighbor is someone you would bump right into if you didn't dance around them. So who who are your neighbors? It might be someone at work. It might be someone at school. It might be someone you commute with. It might be someone in your family. It might be someone in your virtual network. It might be someone on an athletic team. It might be a family member. But I want you to think about names. I'm, I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit right now is bringing names to your mind. Maybe even helping you picture someone's face and saying to you, this is your neighbor. These are your neighbors. Now, what happens when you see yourself as a guest in their world? That changes things for me. You're a guest in their world. And what happens when you begin to think that God is responsible? It's not that they moved into yours, you moved into theirs. It's that God has assigned you to be a guest in their world. So that's the first point. Exiles suggested to them, as I think it does to us, that God assigns you to your neighbors. The second word here is chosen. Very important. Because if you're like me and you begin to realize I'm on this mission, uh, I start to get really nervous. And the hairs on the back of my neck start to crawl. Because I'm not sure I want this mission, thank you very much. My life is complicated enough as it is. I'm a little anxious about this assignment. And that's why Peter is so emphatic. You've been chosen. And he actually develops this a little bit with three phrases. 
Let me read it to you from the King James because you can hear these three qualifying phrases really clearly. You have been chosen, first, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, secondly, through sanctification of the Spirit, and thirdly, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter wants to be sure everyone gets the implications of this choice God has made. To say that you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of of the Father is to say that God is working from a plan. He's strategic. And you're part of the strategy, and your neighbor is part of the strategy. We've already talked about this, but it's not accidental. Foreknowledge. Foreknowledge of the Father. To say that you're chosen through the sanctification of the Spirit is to say, God, the Holy Spirit, is present in your life, in your neighbor's life. Jesus said When he gave the Great Commission, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Through his Holy Spirit. Your life is a holy life, your neighbor is a holy neighbor, and the relationship between the two of you is sacred space. Because of the Spirit. To say that you've been chosen unto obedience and the sprinkling of blood with Jesus Christ is to say that God overcomes your limitations and your failures. See, God wastes nothing. He knows that you and I are challenged by this assignment. He knows what you know about your brokenness and how you'd really like to be worthy uh, for a mission or to help your neighbor in some way and that you're not. And, and that's what Peter says, but don't forget you've been sprinkled. Don't forget the grace of Jesus Christ. Don't forget it's about his obedience, not your obedience. God gives all this to you. And God can use the pain, the brokenness, even your rebellion. It can somehow wonderfully become part of his redemptive story in your life. Don't walk away from it. Let him use it. So I think what God is saying to us here is I've equipped you with my presence. See, you're the right person, the Father says to you. You're the right person. I know that you're afraid of your neighbor. I know you you don't respect yourself the way you respect your neighbor, and you're afraid they won't respect you either. But you're the right person. You're exactly the right person for knowledge of the Father. And I I know you're saying to yourself that you really don't have anything to offer. But look, you have everything to offer because you have my Holy Spirit. Indeed, I am the one who offers through you to your neighbor. And I know you're looking at your past. And I know you're even looking at the temptations of the present. And you're saying, gosh, you know, I, I, I am not the kind of vessel that the living God would use with my temptations and struggles and God says I have already dealt with all of that in Jesus Christ do you not know you're my holy and beloved child forgiven God assigns you to your neighbors God equips you with his presence and now let me transition and talk to you about a practice see because what Peter has said is there's really not a lot for you to do here except to be present to be who you are so equipped by God in your neighbor's life. God presents himself through your presence. A story. David Augsburger was a pastor of a church when he came home one day and there were three unwelcome words on his voicemail. Uh, it said, Mildred has died. Now, this was surprising, just not just because he wasn't expecting Mildred to die that day, but also because he recognized the voice on that message. It was a man named Cece 
who was quite an extraordinary man who had long since left not only the church, but Jesus Christ. C.C. had been a leader at the church, who had gotten sideways with other leaders and had left, but he not only left the church, he left Jesus and his faith. He started cheating on his wife. He um, had a horse ranch. He bred horses. He became tremendously wealthy. He had a string of mistresses. He even had a secret family. He had become hardened, and his wife of 50 years, Mildred now, was dead. But David never expected that C.C. would call him. So not knowing what to do, he put his coat back on very quickly, got in his car and drove across town out to the area where C.C. lived, this ranch, and went to the door, and C.C. indicated very quickly that he wanted to go on a walk with David, which they did through the rain. And they walked and they walked and they walked, a mile this way and a mile that way through these paddocks in the mud. And as David said, my shoes were, leather shoes were starting to disintegrate and my suit was absolutely soaked. And as they walked, they walked in silence, which was very frustrating for a pastor. <laughs> uh, because we like words. And, and he was saying to himself, oh my gosh, what do I say? What can I say? What will he hear? And he started to feel horrible as they got the kind of circuit of five, six miles, came back to the front door, and he realized it's just this conversation is about to end, and I haven't said anything. And he, he said, all my seminary training, all my pastoral experience helped me, not at all. And he gave him a hug, and Cece turned, and he turned. David felt horrible about himself. And just as he was leaving, David pulled him back, and he said, um, David, I've been outside too long. When the funeral is over, can we talk about how I can come in again? And it took him years to realize, through all the self-hatred, that what he had done in simply being present to Cece was the best possible ministry anybody could have offered, just to be with him. God used it to turn his life back. Now, we have nothing to offer if not presence, but when we offer presence, we have everything. Bishop John V. Taylor wrote, the Christian, whoever he or she may be, who stands in the world in the name of Christ has nothing to offer unless he or she offers to be present, really and totally present, really and totally in the present. And I would add that the Christian who offers presence offers the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, whose name is Emmanuel. God with us. You're participating in Jesus' ongoing ministry in somebody else's life. Now, I want to be very practical, so before I let you go, I want to give you five postures for presence because I'm going to ask you to report back in to your small group and also to us next week in worship that you actually tried to be present to somebody this week. That's your homework in some way. So these are five postures of presence. Uh, you do one of these five things, and you will be present to somebody. And I, because I, this is cheesy, but it's I got an acrostic. Okay, I'm a preacher, so I can do that kind of thing. Don't you do that? But it, it helps me remember. So the the acrostic is clear: C L E A R, five postures. And the C is this: curiosity. When you are curious about somebody, you help them see themselves as a unique creation of God. The alternative is stereotyping, bias, projection. Oh, yeah, I know that person. I know everything about it. I kind of can tell who they are. I just sense who they are. You know what? You can't. 
But when you're curious about someone and you say, what's it like to be you right now? I'm just so curious. When you really are curious, you help them feel the value of their life as one of God's creatures. L, listening. To listen is to let somebody tell their story. And we don't even know our story until we tell it to another person. And we can't find a better story until we know our story. So when you listen to someone, you let them know their story to help them find a better story. And they don't need you to give them the better story. They just need you to listen. Do you get that? (laughs) No. Well, here's all you you need to know. Stop talking. (laughs) Just listen. You don't have to guide it. You don't have to lead it. You don't have to pepper them with questions. Just listen. Such a gift. Again, David Augsburg says, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. If you'll let me talk at you, I know you love me. (laughs) Right? I feel so cared for when you listen. E, empathy. Here, when we have empathy for someone, we engage in the ministry that Jesus describes as rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. We don't need platitudes on the one hand, nor do we become so enmeshed in another person's problems that they become ours and consume our hope. No, what we need to do with empathy is sit in silent solidarity with someone and say, if we say anything at all, nothing more than, I know what it's like to be rejected too. I know what it's like to be disappointed too. I know what it's like to feel impotent too. A, availability. This is the gift of time and attention. It's knowing when to pick up the phone and call. It's knowing when not to take the phone call and be present to somebody else. It may be virtual, but it needs to be as real as you can possibly make it. Henry Nouwen writes, more and more the desire grows in me simply to walk around, greet people, enter their homes, sit on their doorsteps, play ball, throw water, and be known as someone who wants to live with them. It's a privilege to have time to practice a simple ministry of presence. Still, it's not as simple as it seems. Catch this. My own desire to be useful, to do something significant, or to be part of some impressive project is so strong that soon my time is taken up by meetings, conferences, study groups, and workshops that prevent me from walking the streets. It's difficult not to have plans, but I wonder more and more if the first thing should shouldn't be to to know people by name, to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories and tell your own, and to let them know with words, handshakes, and hugs that you do not simply like them, but truly love them. you got to be available. And then finally, our remembering. I can't tell you how good it feels when someone said to me the other day, hey, George, how's your heel? Because I have a running injury. How's the heel doing? And you know, I think, oh my gosh, you remembered. That was like a month ago. You've been thinking about my heel? Really? All of a sudden, I, I felt like this person's a companion on the journey with me, right? They're with me. They're tracking my life. They're remembering. So that's really a ministry. It's a posture of presence, remembering. Clear, curiosity, listening, empathy, availability, remembering. It's about transparency. When you are clear in that way, there's very little between you and the presence of God. Live close to Christ and close to your neighbors. When you live close to Christ, the aroma of Christ that Paul talks about, the joy and the hope, and Peter will write about that in this letter. It's all about inexpressible joy, he says in the next paragraph. It's the aroma of Christ. It'll waft through the neighborhood Close to your neighbor. Sometimes it's all we can do is just to show up. 
But when that's all that faith and obedience will lead you to do in a neighbor's life, it's huge just to show up, just to be there. Adele Gabri probably had a closed door on her house, a woman who died in Worcester. And I'm just guessing a lot of her neighbors said, well, you know, Adele, she's just never out. And they never got into that home. They never got through her door to be present to her in this way. But with a bit of intention, you can do that this week. And I want to encourage you to do that. And I want to close with a little letter that was written by a mom to her son, Chase, just as he entered third grade. It's the first day of school. And um, she talks about someone she wasn't present to named Adam. And I want you to think about who's your Adam this week. Listen, listen to what she says to Chase. Dear Chase, tomorrow's a big day. Third grade, Wow. Chase, when I was in third grade, there was a little boy in my class named Adam. Adam Adam looked a little different, and he wore funny clothes and sometimes even smelled a little bit. Adam didn't smile. He hung his head low, and he never looked at anyone at all. The other kids teased Adam a lot. Whenever they did, his head hung lower and lower and lower. I never teased him, but I never told the other kids to stop either, and I never talked to Adam, not once. I never invited him to sit next to me at lunch or to play with me at recess. Instead, he sat and played by himself. He must have been very lonely. I still think about Adam every day. I wonder if Adam remembers me. Probably not. I bet if I'd asked him to play just once, he'd still remember me. I think that God puts people in our lives as gifts to us. The children in your class this year, Chase, they are some of God's gifts to you. So please treat each one like a gift from God, every single one. Baby, if you see a child being left out or hurt or teased, a part of your heart will hurt a little. Your daddy and I want you to trust that heartache. Your whole life, we want you to notice and trust your heartache. That heartache is called compassion. And it is God's signal to you to do something. It's God saying, Chase, wake up. One of my babies is hurting. Do something to help. Whenever you feel compassion, be thrilled. It means God is speaking to you, and that's magic. It means he trusts you and needs you. Compassion might lead you to tell a teaser to stop it and then ask the teased kid to play. You might invite a left-out kid to sit next to you at lunch. You might choose a kid for your team first who usually gets chosen last. These things will be hard to do, but you can do hard things. When God speaks to you by making your heart hurt for another, by giving you compassion, just do something. That's Glennon Melton. So what are we going to do this week? Let's ask God to lead us. Lord Jesus, uh, we don't feel it, sometimes don't even believe it, but we take it this morning as an article of faith that we are on a mission and that you have equipped us for the task. So it's a sacred task. Bring to our minds people to whom we can simply be present. And then as we are, we pray they don't see us nor are impressed with us but see and are deeply impressed by you. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.